As we come now to the scripture, let me ask you please to pray with me. Uh, Father, um, uh, we come to your word, you say, and we believe it, that you say that it's a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. So we trust that it will be that for us this morning, that by this word we will see, we'll see you, we'll see us, uh, we'll see the way to salvation that we'll walk upon it. So I pray, God, that you would uh, give us grace uh, to see in grace, to hear in grace, to believe in grace to live. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn please to Isaiah in chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40, please. I want to read verses um, 1 through 11 and this week uh, verse 31. So uh, verses 1 through 11 and then the final verse in the chapter as well. Verse 1. Uh, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill uh, be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord is spoken. A voice says, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold the Lord, the God uh, comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. And then verse 31 But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And then together, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. I wanted to read this verse 31 because when I started a couple of weeks ago and took up Isaiah 40, I thought I'd actually get there. By the end of Advent, and I guess we haven't, and probably won't. Uh, But it's the punchline to all of this, and so I wanted us to see uh, where we're headed, to see the punchline of all of this, why it is that at this point in time, uh, God instructs Isaiah to write these particular words. And, and, And he wants us to see that those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength and mount up with wings like eagles, run and not be weary, and walk and not faint. Poetry, obviously, but it's, 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 it's Advent language, at least for us, that we're waiting upon the Lord. They were to wait, we're waiting still. They were to wait for the advents of Jesus, and we wait for his second advent uh, now. But this sense of waiting, or as some translations have, hoping in the Lord, if you're waiting for something... There's a sense that you're hoping that something good is going to come. We hope 
for that which is good. We might expect bad, but we hope good. If you were watching the KU game last night, you were hoping they'd win. You might not have been expecting that at certain points of the game, but you were hoping that they win and our hopes were realized. But you were hoping, so we hope for that which is good. And so when you're waiting, this sense of waiting for it, we're hoping for that which is good. And what they were hoping for is is the coming of the Lord. Hoping for the coming of the Lord. That's what we had, had heard about in uh, verse 3. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And they knew that when the Lord came, that's when the, the, it, when the Lord came, that's when the uh, um, forgiveness of sins would come. And the atonement for sin would come. When their iniquities would be pardoned. When they would be restored in relationship with God. Uh, and so that was their hope because that's what they were, in a sense, uh, waiting for. They're waiting for the Lord... To do something. Not waiting for themselves to do something. Their hope was not in their ability to get better. Their hope was not in their ability to make more or better political alliances so that they would be stronger, so that they'd overcome their enemies. It wasn't that they were uh, looking for any improvement really in human nature, that we would become People who would hate less and love more. Or people who wouldn't steal or deceive. Or people who wouldn't be sexually immoral and take advantage of others. All the things that we see in their day and see in our day as well. Their hope wasn't there. They weren't waiting for all that to change in themselves. They were waiting for the Lord to come and bring the change, if you will. And bring the new heavens ultimately and uh, the new earth. It, that could have been their mantra in a sense was the Lord is coming. The Lord is coming. Wait for the Lord. When things would get difficult, wait for the Lord. The Lord is is coming. And that would be, if you will, uh, their, their strength. Um, week one, uh, uh, we thought about the hope that we have because of the promises of God. Because for their hope, the coming of Jesus. For our hope, he's come and will come again. And as the Apostle Peter says, we have our hope even more sure. More sure than they. Why? Because he's already come. And so we can trust that he'll come again. And, and so we're even more certain than they. We've seen more than they had seen in the days of Isaiah. But um, uh, so great hope there. And that hope is our strength. And the second week we talked about the love of God that caused him to send his son for God so loved the world that is he sent his only begotten his one and only son so that whoever would believe on him would have eternal life and so he sends his son why because he loves so he is so he comes to love and and to redeem you see Uh, and so uh, it was the love of God and the great strength you see from knowing that we're loved. And, and this sense today in this particular theme of Advent of joy. The joy that we have by knowing that the Lord loves us. You know that wonderful little expression that's in the book of Nehemiah? And we often take it and just sort of pluck it from its context. Uh, the joy of the Lord is our strength. That is the Lord's joy. The joy that he has. In himself. And this joy that he has in himself 
in part, of all the things that could, could, um, we could say about it, comes from the fact that he loves. See, there's great joy in loving and there's great joy in knowing that you're loved. When we measure how we love, we say that the more one sacrifices for another is an indication of the more that one is loved. The more that one sacrifices is an expression or an evidence of the greatness of the love, if you will. But not only that, uh, love is always associated with joy. The joy in loving, the joy in sacrificing. If there's no joy in loving another, it's just duty. Now, duty is not the worst motivation in the world, but it isn't love. See, love is always accompanied by joy, the joy the lover receives in loving. Oh, there's sacrifice made, but, but the lover doesn't even hardly notice the sacrifice. Why? Because the lover loves and is quite willing to make that sacrifice. You know, one of the most astounding statements in all the New Testament, I suppose, is this, that for the joy set before him, that is Jesus, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. That is to say, when Jesus went to the cross, he didn't go giggling. But he went with great joy. Why? Because he loved his father and he was redeeming a people for his father. And he loved those he was redeeming. And so for him, though it was the greatest sacrifice anyone could imagine, the very son of God being forsaken by his father and all that, that he went with joy. Now, when you know that someone loves you and is delighted to sacrifice for you. It gives you strength. I mean, even if it's another person. In fact, sometimes that's all it takes in a person's life to really make a big change, to know that they're loved by someone, that someone really loves them. And even though it's a sacrifice to love, you're no bother, you're no nuisance. (laughs) They actually enjoy loving you, enjoy sacrificing for you, enjoy giving. And when you know that, it, it, it just... Gives you great encouragement and strength. But then to know that one is God. That he's the one who loves you like that. And he's the one who has great joy in loving you, you see. It brings great strength. Because that expression in Romans chapter 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? I mean, what could give you more strength than that? Than to know that God is actually for us. And how do we know that he's actually for us? Well, he's loved us. And how's he loved us? He's loved us by sending his son. And it wasn't a duty. It wasn't a drudgery. We're not a nuisance. It was with great joy that he did that. He, he wants us, desires us to be his. And so he's redeemed us. And so the joy of the Lord really is our strength. Those that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They shall rise up. With wings like eagles, they'll run and not be weary. They'll walk and they won't faint. You want to be one who perseveres, who continues on, and you need to know the joy of the Lord. You need to know the Lord's joy in loving you. And that will give you strength. Well, I won't get there today, so I just wanted to do that. So you'll know that's where we're headed sometime. We might get there. I don't know when. Maybe we'll take up Isaiah 40 next Advent, or maybe we'll do it after the first of the year. I don't know, but uh, sometime 
we'll get to that particular, that particular uh, verse. But notice today as we take up verse 6, uh, to move along to verse 31, that as we take up verse 6, we find that Isaiah's hearing a voice, and this voice says that he's to, to cry. He, again, he, Isaiah's announcing in such a way as to bring hope to people so they'll be able to persevere, so they'll know this, have this great strength. And he's already in the first couple of verses uh, comforted them with the word that, 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 that their iniquity will be pardoned, their warfare with God and, and with each other really will be ended, and with sin, and uh, their sins will be atoned for, and uh, all that because the Lord is, is coming. And so now he says they're to cry. And then he asks this question, what shall I cry? What shall I cry? That is exactly what a prophet should say to God. That's exactly what a preacher should say to God. What shall I say? Because you see, a prophet is not a person. A preacher is not a person who has his own agenda. He realizes what he says doesn't originate with him. That's why we spend so much time. We read the scripture first together and listen. And then we say, everything we say should be based upon this. It isn't my origination. You see, a prophet, a preacher, uh, isn't to, to be one who thinks what he thinks is what everyone should think. It's what God thinks that everyone should think. And so our only power, our only authority really is in this uh, particular word. Preachers, prophets weren't to be self-important. They weren't to be those who would seek a platform. In fact, if you read about the people God calls, they're most often terribly reluctant to to do what he's calling them to do. For instance, in Acts, I'm sorry, in Exodus in chapter 4, in verse 10, we read about Moses when God's calling him. Uh, it says, But Moses said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, uh, either in the past or, or since you have spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech and, and of tongue. And the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth, who has made him mute or deaf uh, or seeing or blind, is it I, not the Lord? Now therefore go, and I'll be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. And so, but he said, oh my Lord, please send someone else. You know how that all worked out with his brother Aaron and all that. But, but the point is that the prophets are always reluctant. When God says, I want you to take this, then this message, I want you to speak on my behalf. A true prophet is Reluctant, you might remember Jeremiah was the same. Jeremiah in chapter 1, uh, God uh, begins to call Jeremiah to be his, his prophet. And then in verse 6, uh, Jeremiah says, Ah, oh, Lord God, behold, I don't know how to speak, for I'm only a youth. Uh, but the Lord said to me, Do not say I'm only a youth, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Don't be afraid of them, for I will be with you and deliver you, declares the Lord all Prophets of God begin very reluctantly. When I talk to young pastors, I always ask them why they want to be a pastor, want to teach or preach. Um, And if they say something to the effect of, I have no idea, but God has called me, then I'm pretty happy. Right? I'm pretty happy. Uh, I don't want them to be uh, too self-confident, not self-confident. At all. In fact, in Jeremiah 23, we, we hear about those who are false prophets. Um, verse 16. Thus says the Lord of hosts, 
Don't listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hope. These are false prophets. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster will come upon you. And then in verse uh, 21, I did not send these prophets, yet they ran. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, they would have proclaimed my words to my people. And they would have turned from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. And so as Isaiah comes, he, he asks the right expression uh, to God. What, what shall I say? I don't know, I don't know what to say. Can I, can I really say what you've said? Can I, can I really say that you're going to pardon uh, us from our sins? Can I, can I really say that you're coming? That you're coming? And that all flesh will see you. Can I, can I really say that? You see, Can you really be that good God? This message seems too good to be true. Can you really be that well disposed towards us? Can you really take a people like we have been and make us to be a people that belong to you? Can you really do that? Can I really say that? Well, he gives them the message to say, notice... In the middle of verse 6, you know this, we say this, we just said it a minute ago. All flesh is grass, and its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. But when the breath of of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains uh, forever. What's he saying? His message is is, is clear that we're weak, that we're frail. But God is eternal. And we need to hear. We need to hear from him. He says, listen, human beings are like grass. We're like the flower, flowers that fade. And it doesn't take much at all. Just some intense heat, a lack of rain. And our grass is brown and our flowers fade away. And all of that. Um, unless you're in my house and we just water incessantly. Uh, but... Uh, um, but it's true, the, in and of themselves, it doesn't take much at all for them to, 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 to wither, to die. See, that's what human beings are like, and we know that. I mean, generation after generation, the, the preacher, Ecclesiastes, tells us that generation after generation, we come and we go and we're forgotten. We're born, we die, we're forgotten. That seems to be the cycle of things. And, uh, and, and so we, we must understand that. And so, so God is simply giving uh, Jer- uh, Isaiah this, this, this very um, sensible message but then he says look the grass withers the flower fades when the breath of the lord blows on it and the breath of the lord the word of god when it comes in judgment it destroys but that's not the final message there's this message the grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our god will stand Forever. In other words, the word of God, when it's spoken in power, brings life. We know that from Genesis 1. In the beginning, right? What did God do? He speaks. And what happens? Life happens. His word, you see, is powerful. Moses says to the people as they're entering the land, these words are not idle words for you. These words are your life. We see that too in the Psalms. For instance, in um, Psalm 19, uh, we see... Uh, the impact, if you will, of this of this word of God. For instance, in, in uh, Psalm 19 and verse 7, 
says the law of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul. So when the word of God comes, it revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. It makes wise the simple. That's my life verse, for instance. Uh, God, the word of God makes the simple wise. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightens the eyes. So when the word of God comes in the life of a person, you see it, you understand. Your eyes are open to it. Then your whole soul is revived and you rejoice. You're filled, uh, filled, with, filled with joy. Uh, the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 55, later on in this prophetic book, puts it like this verse. Um, verse 10. For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and don't return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word that goes out of my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and succeed in the thing for which I sent it. You see, God's word is powerful. And so it always succeeds in the purpose for which he sends it. Now notice... The next expression, uh, because this is the reason that God sends his word upon his people. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle and it shall make a name for the Lord an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. In other words, when the, when the Lord speaks his word upon his people, it's for our joy. It's for our joy. So we, we know that we're redeemed. We know that we're his. We know that he is indeed, in fact, uh, with us. And of course, the author of Hebrews puts it very pointedly about this word in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from its sight. It's just the piercing power of the word of God. But it's the apostle Peter who picks this up, this very expression of Isaiah. I read it earlier for us, so I won't read the whole passage. Just this, notice verse 23 of 1 Peter chapter 1. You're right, since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. It's the, it's this, it's the gospel that we read is the power of God. Unto salvation to all who believe. This word is eternal. It's it's not like us. It it isn't weak. It doesn't die off. Nothing can kill it. This word of God actually brings life. And it's this gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why uh, the, the gospel can be referenced like this. And it is throughout the New Testament. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus did it's always a declaration gospel good news it's news has to be declared 
uh, we can say we can live out the implications of the gospel, and that's true. But, but really, when the when we talk about the gospel, it's news. We have to we have to express it, declare it. We'll see that in a few minutes as we get to verse nine. But it's got to be declared. It's good news. And in the days in which uh, the New Testament writers wrote, uh, gospel uh, meant that uh, there was something great had happened that changed everything. Uh, maybe a war had been won and that would, that would change everything. Or maybe it had been lost and that had been changed. That would be bad news. Uh, or a baby was born to the king, not to mention the son of God, born. Gospel, good news. And it's the gospel of Jesus, what he has done. The New Testament describes it also as the the gospel of God, that it's his gospel. The gospel is the power of God. And we can see it's it's God's good news. Uh, God the Father who elects. God the Son who redeems. God the Holy Spirit who gives life, you see. So it's the gospel of God. It's the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom, the good news that the kingdom of God has come, which is to say that the rule of God has come. And it's a rule that's gracious. It's a rule that's merciful. It's a rule that's compassionate. It's a rule that's forgiving. It's that kind of of rule, the, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, you see. And that's why it's such good news. When that news comes, it brings life. Just like when Jesus called Lazarus from the grave, the word of God. The word of the mouth of Jesus brings life, you see. And so he said, this word of God endures forever. So what should we do? Well, Isaiah would learn in verse 9, he was to go up to a high mountain uh, and, and, and be the herald of good news. He was to lift up his voice with strength. In fact, all of Jerusalem was to do that and lift it up uh, without fear and say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. That's the real message. The real message is behold your God. Prepare the way of the Lord. The Lord has come. Behold your God. That's what they were waiting for. That's what we've seen in Jesus. That's what we'll see in his return. Behold your God. They were to shout that from the mountains. Um, It's metaphorical. It doesn't mean we have to climb real mountains to do that. Although some of the men in our church would love to do that. Uh, but, But it's... We're to go where we can be heard. And he says, do it without fear. Why would we fear? Uh, We could fear because people may reject us if we share this truth with them. And Jesus said, they've hated me, they'll hate you. And so they may. In fact, in the days of Peter, when Peter wrote to that church that was a persecuted church, and they were to be encouraged, be strengthened by the word that it's this good news that endures forever in us and always. And then notice this God who comes, verse 10. He says, behold, the Lord, of the, the, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. So on the one hand, he comes with great might to destroy sin and death, uh, to destroy the power of death over us, to destroy the power of sin over us. And by the Lord Jesus coming and taking the guilt of our sins so that we can live. And be forgiven. And in verse 10, he comes not just with might, but with tenderness and gentleness. He'll tend his flock like a shepherd. He'll gather the lambs in his arms. He'll carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. He tends his flock. 
It's his flock. How did we become his flock? Why his? Why do we belong to him? Well, because we were given to him. Because he made us. And because he died for us. Right? He died for us. We're not our own. We've been bought with a price. He died for us. So we belong to him. He's our shepherd. And you say, well, I don't like to belong to anyone. Really? You wouldn't want to belong to the one who died for you? You wouldn't want to belong to the one uh, who gave himself for us? That kind of love. To gather the lambs in his arms and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young, you see. He'll come to the most vulnerable, which is all of us, really. But you remember when he met that woman who was the adulterous woman and he came to her and he said that her sins were forgiven. He said, I'm a friend of sinners. He said, I've come not for the healthy, but the sick. I've come not for the righteous, but for the sinner. He comes for the weak among us, which we all are. Jesus said, we're all poor in spirit. We all need him. and need the forgiveness that comes through him. And he'll gently lead us. He'll gently lead us. Um, there's an expression in Isaiah chapter 40. I'm sorry, Isaiah chapter 42. About the coming of the Messiah. It says, a bruised reed he will not break. And a burning flax he will not snuff out. What's he mean by that? He means that Jesus comes to us at our points of vulnerability. Or most vulnerable. Most likely to break at that point. And he can come and touch us in a way. That we don't break, but we actually strengthen. Or, after the service, somebody, I hope, will blow out those candles. Uh, so we'll have something left for the second service. And when, they, when you do, when you blow out those candles, what will happen is that there'll just be a little smoke. And you'll just see, and it just, just, it, it's the coolest it's going to be until it goes out. And if you blow on it again, they'll go out completely. But this Jesus who comes can blow right there and the flame won't go out. But it'll get stronger. He gently leads. He said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, that is, be my disciple, follow me. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, you see. And that's what Isaiah is to shout from the mountaintops. That's what Jerusalem would shout. That's what would come out of Jerusalem throughout all the world. When Jesus said to his disciples, um, don't leave here, stay in Jerusalem, for power is going to come upon you and you'll be my witnesses here and in Judea and Samaria and to all the ends of the earth, you see. It will go out from him. This message that we're frail, uh, we die. But the word of God lasts forever. And the word of God is powerful, powerful to bring life, not just for a while, but real life and life eternal. So he's going to come with power and he's going to destroy all evil 
and destroy sin and death. And then he says, now trust me. I'll satisfy you. I'll bring you all that you need. In whatever situation you find yourself, trust me. I will help you. I will come to you. I will shepherd you. I will bless you. And how do we know that's true? Well, we know it because he's come. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he was with his disciples and he took bread and after giving thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. And again, after giving thanks, this too, he gave to his disciples. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And the apostle adds, as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What does he mean by proclaim the Lord's death until he comes? You'll be preaching and hearing the gospel. The good news, that's what it is, that the Lord has come, that he's given himself for us. That's it. And that word brings life. That word, believed, expresses life. The very life that God gives that's eternal. Since forgiven, restored with him, life to live in his strength. Why? Because he did this with great joy. He loved loving us. It was for the joy that was set before Jesus that he endured the cross, despising its shame. He did it. And he said, now, know that I love you. Trust me. I forgive you, receive, walk with me, live. Let's pray. Father, I pray for me, for us, that you would enable us to really know all that Christ has done. Um, To behold our God as we behold our Lord Jesus. Thank you that he's come and given himself for us. And so on this moment today, I pray that you take this bread and this juice and you set it apart in such a way that we will know that we're in the very presence of the one who gave himself for us and who's risen from the dead and rules and reigns over all things for your glory and the sake of your people. So I pray even as we come to this table that we will be able to behold our God, uh, the one who has given himself for us. And this I pray in Jesus' name.